and thank you for coming. Um, and really thank you for coming. You know, I was thinking about, um, I was just thinking when I was saying thank you for coming that the, that the, um, that we really need human beings that are devoted to the difficult spiritual path required to release the full might of love into the world. And um, there I am. And, um, and so I appreciate that each one of you are actually taking that up. Maybe that's not what you, you didn't think this morning you were coming here to release the full might of love into the world by saying Zazen, but I feel we are. And I feel that, um, and that our commitment to what we often say, straight back, open heart, um, is a training for just that. And so we do that together, and that's what I wanted to talk about today, which was um, what we're actually doing when we're doing Zen. Because Zen is, it's not so clear always. Zen is a, is a monastic, comes from a monastic tradition. And so we kind of associate it with that. I'm all over the place on this mic. Um, kind of all over the, um, we kind of associate the practice with, um, with the monastic tradition. And um, that doesn't, always translates so well into what we're doing here. And it's not always so clear how we translate that. So when we, when we boil it down, what's, what's the difference um, between Zen and the other traditions? Although I won't talk so much about that. But um, what are we taking up when we're walking in the door? You know, and the first thing that you do, usually, if you come here, is you go to meditation instruction. And um, there's something going weird with this. I'm going on and off and on and off. Um, And the very first thing that we teach is, is usually breath meditation. I'm going to talk a little bit about meditation. Because we actually do three kinds of meditation over time. And we kind of jump back and forth between them. There's a little bit of progression, but not so much. It depends what you're doing when you sit down, and it depends where we are when we sit down. So the first thing that we train ourselves to do is is focusing on the breath. Now, any one of these um, practices can deepen our understanding of who we are in a profound way. None are lesser than the other. Um, but they do serve different purposes for the mind. So, so when we're focusing on our breath, um, one of the reasons we do that first is because the mind's running all over the place. So when we sit down, you know, we're used to the mind just following whatever trail it wants to, I, I think about this, and I think about this, and I think about this. And... Um, and the capacity to pay attention to what's actually happening 
is compromised by the mind running all over the place. So we give it something to pay attention to, something to return to. And the breath is always with us. And not only is the breath always with us, the breath is in the body. It's not the intellect. And so we start off by seeing the breath as an object of meditation and paying attention to it. Bringing the mind back, we find ourselves lost in thought and and doing what the mind's used to doing. And we just bring it back to the breath again and again and again. And for a while, that is, there's kind of a divide between the one that's paying attention and the breath we're paying attention to. But over time, actually, those two things come together. And we are the breath. We begin to actually center in the breath. And so that attending to the breath is being the breath at the same moment. And, um, and that brings us into the warmth and wisdom and intelligence of the body in a way that we're not accustomed to. And that is, that is a very important, um, an important aspect of what we're doing because our, our, our conditioned mind is, we know it intellectually. You know, whatever thought comes up, we just believe it and we go. And, um, and we're not listening to a whole host of, um, Voices, if you will. I'm using that term loosely, but a whole, a whole wisdom that is actually coming from other places than our intellectual reasoning. And, um, and we're learning to listen to that. And also, by taking um, these physical postures, you know, early, this is true of all the kinds of meditation we do, but, but we do focus on physical posture, you know, and a certain kind of resting and straightness and stability. And this isn't just because we like to um, be stiff. You know, there's a, um, over time, and this isn't, a, everybody starts wriggling when I talk about posture. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, the posture comes with time. It shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a, um, a forced or violent um, process. It should be a gentle one. But, um, the reason that the physical posture is, uh, is important is because it, we have all kinds of ways we respond and try to alleviate our becoming intimate with our own suffering. We have all kinds of ways out, you know, addictive ways out and scratching and moving and I want to get out of here and I'm going to wiggle and I'm going to do all these things. Posture, and also that conditioning shows up in our body. We might, this might be our conditioning, and the mic falls. Um, this might be our conditioning. Over stiffness might be our conditioning. Um, rigidity. We can go all kinds of ways. So finding a place that is both upright and gentle and relaxed challenges these things and reveals them to us. But also. Um, Physical posture promotes a, a mental posture. Over time, the mind begins to be upright. The mind stops moving around so much. The mind actually takes on the posture that we're practicing in the body. And those two things cannot be pulled apart. You know, we, can't, we can't cultivate a mental posture 
without attending to the way we move in the world and are in the world. Those things are deeply, deeply intimate with each other and intertwined. So, so that's one of the reasons that Zen really, um, really focuses on that. And 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 another and this 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 first kind of meditation that that is about the breath, it's ultimately about the ability to f- to have this kind of upright, focused um, relationship to the world. So we carry that into things like um, what we call chop, chop wood, carry water, zen. When we're with the dishes, we're just with the dishes. We're being the dishes. We're being the washing of the dishes. We're being the movement through the zendo. We're actually letting the scramble of the mind do what it's going to do, but be with what's happening. And noticing when we can't do that. When the mind is all over the place. So, um, and not beating ourselves up for it, but just remembering the intention of coming back. And so this, you'll see throughout everything we do in Zen. There's nothing, there is literally nothing we do in Zen practice. And that doesn't just include in this space, that includes everywhere we are in our lives. That we don't consider this practice. That we don't consider this practice of bringing the mind back to the moment. We start with the breath as an object to train it, but then eventually what we're bringing our mind back to is the moment. To experience again and again and again and again. And when we're off from it, we notice and we come back. Now, this moves us into a kind of... um, aspect of meditation that's a little bit different than just developing um, this upright mind, which is um, beginning to pay attention to aspects of our conditioned mind. So the three main ways we do it, and we don't talk about it necessarily in exactly this way, but these are the three things we're really paying attention to. The first is dukkha, the mind of disease, the mind that's always uncomfortable. You know, the mind and body that's always uncomfortable. The mind and body that wants the world to be a specific way and is going to wiggle around and manipulate until it gets it that way, until it gets it just right. And and then, of course, that disappears and we have to manipulate again to get it just right and then we have to do it again and then we have to do it again. So, um, So we're starting to look at the roots of that mind and um, and we experience that in the body. We experience that, we experience that as contractions, impulses to move. What's there? What's happening? Can we survive it? Do we have to do it? What's at the root? So there's the body and being aware of the body, but then there's also beginning to see our thoughts. What are the stories that we're actually telling ourselves about who we are and what we are, and about this situation? You know, that makes it so impossible. And um, and just beginning to know, and then beneath, and and some of that we experience in just this kind of chatter. That's actually the easy part. In the beginning, that chatter seems to be the things like I can't stop thinking, and over time that is okay. And that, but that's actually the easy thinking in a way to deal with. The more difficult thinking are the beliefs that we begin to find when we explore the body deeply. When we start looking into what is that contraction or why one shoulder stays up or why I can't release my psoas muscle or it feels impossible to straighten up because everything in me is telling me this is my natural position. 
you know, or whatever it is. It feels impossible to relax because everything is telling me that I need to be really stressed out and stiff. And when we start looking into those, those aspects of the body, we start digging into what our real core beliefs are about who we are, what we really think we are, and how we're creating this separate self that is frightened and, um, and alone and many things, whatever it is. We'll find it. We each find it out for ourselves. This can't be done by anybody but ourselves. So, um, so we look deeply at that thinking, at those truths. And they are personal truths, you know. We, they happened for us in a moment in our lives. They didn't, we didn't just decide one day to um, create all these beliefs. We learned all of these beliefs in situations that, where they made sense, where they were accurate. And um, we rooted them into our bodies, and they stayed there. And now they're running the show. And um, they're not necessarily so helpful anymore. And they cause us probably more suffering than anything. So looking at dukkha, looking at this body and mind of um, discomfort, of suffering, of ill ease, um, this is a long, this is a lifelong practice. We're always looking at this conditioning. We're always paying attention to this. This takes a very long, I mean, forever. It just gets more and more subtle and more and more subtle and more and more subtle. So then the, uh, the other thing, one of the other thing lenses that we look through is, um, is impermanence. Now these come from the Buddha, this idea of looking at um, three things, at dukkha, which is this, this disease, at impermanence and at no self, or what we in Zen call emptiness. Um, looking at impermanence is just beginning to look at, um, and we don't need to do all this at once. We don't need to go, oh, these are the things you're going. We kind of naturally do this. Um, maybe not impermanence and emptiness, but dukkha we start paying attention to the second we sit down for the first time because it throws itself up in, in our faces. Um, Impermanence, we begin to just look at the way what we think we are comes and goes. You know, we have an idea of something, a static, permanent self, but we, when we start looking, it's very difficult to find where that is. You know, is it this sensation that I'm feeling right now? Is it this feeling over my heart? Is it the clench in my throat every time I try to speak and become self-conscious? What is the thing that is actually the self that is solid in there that we can find? And, um, and so we look. We look and see if we can find something solid. And if we can, great, then the Buddha was wrong. But if we can't, then that's something to be curious about. You know, and to start paying attention to it. And then ask ourselves, like, what are we so loyal to? What is the thing in here that we are um, trying to defend constantly in every situation where we feel like we're being um, I'm being careful because I was about to say the word threatened, but there are times in our society where some people actually are quite literally threatened 
But I'm not talking about the, the, sane, um, the sane response to, to um, violence and to oppression and to real threats. But, um, but the not-so-sane response to, if somebody challenges what I'm saying, I suddenly feel threatened. You know, um, What is that thing where, and all of the ways that comes up, what is that thing we're trying to defend? Um, and then this, these, these are all explorations. They're all things just, they're all lenses just to turn the mind toward. And then this other one, emptiness, no self. This is the, this is the um, teaching that um, nothing has a core or a boundary. Every concept we have in the world, even one on the, that even candle or floor, these concepts, especially when we start getting to things like who I am and ideas about myself, these things don't have solid cores and don't have clear boundaries. So when we start looking, we, we try to find where those are. Even when we experience them as such, look deeply into that experience. Look deeply into the way that we wall ourselves off. This is the limit of what I can do. This is the limit of who I am. Look at these limits. Look at these ideas. And see if you can really find those walls and those cores in the body or in the mind. And, um, and what begins to be illuminated is actually something else, which is a deep interconnectedness of everything that we think we are. We just can't find the wall of separation between myself and you. I can't find that space. And, um, and over, the ti- over time the mind begins to give up its loyalty to those ideas and, um, and lives in the body, and the body's experience is a much more fluid experience than, than the intellect's experience, than our conceptual projection across the world, which needs to really harden things up. And so we, um, we look at these things in this way of, this way of being, and then... You know, and then the, uh, another way that we come to, um, and all of these build up different capacities. You know, you can see the first way of coming to meditation as a way of building this stable mind and this focused mind, a mind that's necessary actually to be able to um, suffer through the experience of our conditioning. Because we would like to run a lot of times. And um, we need the mind that doesn't run. We need the mind that can be there with it. The mind that has a certain kind of structural integrity that's required to um, be still with what arises. Be still with knowing ourselves. Knowing ourselves, truly deeply knowing ourselves, is not always so delightful. You know? And um, but profoundly necessary if we're to be free if we're to be free, and if we're to be happy, not in the sense of momentarily happy, but, um, but a deeper contentment that is not dependent on what's happening, even when we're not happy. Even when we're not happy with what's going on, there can be a contentment with one's being, even when there are very um, real reasons to be unhappy very legitimate reasons to be unhappy. 
And so, um, so our mind begins to steady and not be so hypnotized by, by the things that are coming up in it. And then there's this, then there's a, um, the kind of meditation that Zen is, is most famous for, if you will, what we call Shikantaza. And this sounds easy. It's the easiest one to explain in a way. And um, the most difficult one to uh, embody. And that is simply sitting still and allowing everything to arise and fall away without doing anything about it. Without moving, without trying to understand it, without trying to explore it, without digging in, without trying to manipulate it, without running away from it. Being the still mind that just allows life, allows experience to arise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. And um, as long as we are very invested in what's arising and falling, this is difficult. It's not to say we shouldn't do it or 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 make it an intention, but um, but it's difficult. And what will likely happen? And so this should this this is something to be very okay with. Is what will likely happen is we'll be doing all of these. So when we want to be, when we have the intention to sit down and simply be still with whatever rises up and falls away, we have an intention to practice shikantaza. Um, we may notice that our mind's all over the place, and so we may say, you know what, I need to pay attention. I need to be with my breath for a little bit until I quiet down. And then something comes up that is deeply painful, and the mind is saying, look into it. And then we shift into wisdom meditation for that period, and that's something to look at. And we should respect those moments when it comes up, because we don't get to decide them. You know? And so we explore. And then that works itself out, and we go back to our intention to just be with whatever arises. And we'll set our intention. I think it's very good. Intention is really important in Zen practice. We will set our intention when we sit down at the cushion. We may set the intention of just being with the breath or just being with sound. Something else may interrupt that intention with something really important to pay attention to. And we'll do that. And we'll but set it consciously. I am now going to turn to pay attention to this because my body is telling me to do it. And these very conscious intentions in our meditation practice disrupts this kind of flying all over the place. I'm just going to do whatever's happening next. You know. But we say, okay, now we're going to set this intention because the body is giving me this information. And we have to trust our bodies. You know, the wonderful thing about the body in my experience, in my own practice, is that it usually doesn't deliver something up to me that I'm not ready to handle. You know, our um, traumatic compartmentalization system is really good. It does its job really, really well. If we're not ready to see something, it's just not going to show itself. It just stays buried. But the thing is, is by sitting down in meditation, we're giving, we're, we're actually extending the invitation to the body to begin to show us things. To begin to show us who we are. To begin to show us what's actually happening. And um, what's actually running our lives. And so it does start to deliver. 
It does start to deliver. We sometimes sit down and go, oh my God, meditation is terrible. I sit down, I feel awful. All this stuff starts happening. Well, you're not doing the things that you normally do to kill all that information. All that stuff is just operating behind the, you know, the little Wizard of Oz guy behind the curtain. It's just running out the whole, all the images, running your whole life, but you're not actually offering any invitation to it to show itself to you. And in meditation, that's exactly what we're doing. So, that all seems fine. What, you know, <laughs> it's fairly straightforward, difficult, but, but straightforward. Most people come here to start sitting, and that's what they want to do. But why all of these rituals and forms and robes and weirdness? You know, what is going on with Zen's um, expression of itself? What is that practice? You know, are we just doing it because we like um, the way it looks? And um, I would suggest no. But that's not what's happening. We're not doing it just because of the way, the way I don't necessarily feel this is not the most comfortable outfit I ever put on. But um, but there is something about rituals and forms that do something not different, um, somewhat different, but extend what we're trying to do in meditation. And in the same way that meditation cultivates um, mental postures, ritual cultivates mental postures. Bowing cultivates a certain way of being with the world. You know, we have a real, it's very easy for us to walk down the street and dismiss the humanity of most people. You know, we can just, we're in a hurry, and, um, or that kind of person makes us uncomfortable, or whatever it is, and their humanity's out the window. We don't even notice it. And this is exactly what bowing um, counters. Because when we come into a room, we bow to our seat, recognizing that this seat is going to be the thing that supports us. And you'll find your own intentions. I'm going to suggest some, but I don't, I'm not suggesting that these are the only intentions that you put behind bowing. This will be a rich... I, what I would suggest is that you treat every form and ritual as an as a, um, opportunity for very rich exploration. Your own, and what will come up in it. So, bowing to the cushion recognizes the support of ourselves in meditation and the place, and actually marking off a sacred space for, for taking care of ourselves and for illuminating ourselves and for taking ourselves seriously enough that our liberation is important to us. That in and of itself is an amazing moment, that you actually walk in this room and you're saying, I am important enough to take my own liberation seriously. So... We recognize that when we bow to a cushion. And then we turn and we bow to the community, and we recognize that not only is the community supporting us, but every one of these beings is engaged in the same liberation. And we're doing this together, and there's no way to understand it without each other. And so, 
and then we bow to that altar where the Buddha sits. To some degree, that's about the historical Buddha. I mean, one could say that and say we're grateful for the line that was started by him. But in Mahayana, we actually talk about, and in Zen, we actually talk about a lot that we're bowing to the Buddha that is everyone. We're bowing to the awakened nature that is ourselves. We're bowing to the awakened nature that is the whole world. And, um, and then again, we bow to each other and we do prostrations. Now, there's an interesting thing about prostrations because um, it's, it really shakes up a lot of stuff for people. Not everyone, but a lot of stuff for people. And that is, an, that is a really important thing to look at. What is it? Is it around authority? Is it around the fact that bowing makes me feel humiliated? Is it around, you know, shame, self-loathing? What's up that this, this action of going down and touching the earth and coming back up again is stimulating all of this stuff? And instead of dismissing it outright as some stupid act, we treat it as an opportunity for exploring what's going on for us. Because if we dismiss things outright, you can pretty much guarantee that you're acting on your own conditioning and grasping your own conditioning. If there is no opportunity for saying, huh, what if, maybe so, there might be an opportunity here, then we're acting on what we inherited. And we're grasping what we inherited. So... These are all, these kinds of rituals are all, one thing that we do that, that is very much a form in Zen is um, we pick up everything with two hands and we set it down completely. We don't take our attention away from anything that we're doing. So there isn't this kind of, there isn't a setting down of a cup. A setting down of a cup is like this. It's not like this. And silly? Well, what is a world that we treat like this? What is a world that we treat where we come to the world and we, our attention leaves the person we're with before we're finished with them? Our attention leaves our partner midway through a sentence. Our attention leaves our own words. We're just talking without our attention actually being with our own words. What is that world to live in? You know? And so, having forms that actually train us in loving care. You know, I, was, I, I gave a, a talk a few weeks ago, or a month ago, or whenever it was, on indebtedness. And, and it was interesting, because it was really important to me, but I couldn't find teachings on it. And what I said in that talk is that these... Um, because all the teachings are in the forms. We embody indebtedness and gratitude when we bow, when we take care of things, when we're moving. And very much about Zen practice, what we're doing here, is the embodiment of these teachings. We don't really care all that much about people's intellectual understanding of these teachings. That's nice. And most certainly, if you're going to be leading a class or something, it's good to have some intellectual clarity of the teachings. But it's not really what's at the root of transformation. It's not what transforms us. What transforms us is when we have a deep experience, 
a deep insight that affects the way we set down a cup, that affects the way we engage another human being. You know, that's when the insight, the awakening, begins to be realized and matter in the world. Up until that point, it's just some selfish pursuit that is kind of egoic and arrogant. So, um, not that it's not important. For a while, that will be what it is, and that's okay. But at a certain point, it starts to change what we are as a being in the world. And then, you know, all of these rituals and roles, one thing that's really important about it is we do them together. You know, so we do them together. So we have, we come in with kind of an individualistic notion of what we are. And then we stick ourselves in situations where we're all doing the same thing. And, and Suzuki Roshi said once, he's the founder of this lineage in America, he said, um, when you're all doing different things, I can't see you. When you're doing the same things, I can see you clearly. And, um, and this is true. It's as long as we have our own adaptive strategies, everybody can present in this way that, that um, they're kind of doing a lot of covering up. We can do a lot of covering up. But there's something about putting, it's why we're really uncomfortable doing it, right? There's something about putting ourselves in situations where we're all doing the same thing that feels very raw. You know, it's just a very raw experience of, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how to do this. This other person knows what they're doing, even though oftentimes they don't. You just think that. But, um, and then there's this very raw feeling of exposure, because it is exposing. Because when we set an intention um, to do something as a community, we are seeing each other. And... Um, that's what's so important about a sangha space, is that we can hopefully be in a place that is loving and careful and attentive and committed to each other, where we can begin seeing what is causing us suffering. And all of this, all of this stuff we're doing is a series of mirrors and practices that are all supporting that. There's no one thing that's going to do everything. Zazen alone, it's good. If you're going to do one thing, sit. Um, because you do have to build up the capacity to see. And so you need to sit. But um, you can get good at that. You can tune out. You can think you're seeing and you're just sitting there zoning out. So what do you do if you're one of the ones that zone out? We stand you up and put you in service and you start bowing and now you can't zone out anymore. You know. Or worse, we start putting you in roles like Doan, and then you have to deal with your perfectionism, and people are going to see me make a mistake, or Zazen period will end early, and then we have to start another Zazen period. Um, all these things happen, and they happen in, in community. The roles are really wonderful because, um, like I said, the, you know, I don't have a clock, I don't know what time it is. 10 to 12, and I'm supposed to end at 12? <laughs> That's, yeah. Did we start late? No? I've just been talking a long time. Okay, <laughs> so that'll move quickly. Um, you know, these things that um, we do, these roles, they're kind of wonderful because 
and really important. Because the thing about the roles is not only do they bring up different things, like that thing hitting the bell often brings up people's perfectionism. When you move into being the lead chanter, people struggle with their voice. What is it to really come forward as my voice and let people hear my voice? It's terrifying. You, know, you, you can be really good at running a Fortune 500 company and you sit you in that seat and you fall apart because now I have to be this raw, authentic being and everyone's listening. You know, and so Tenzo, people like my food, not like my food. Eno, people hate authority. I'm in this authority position. I'm telling people what to do, and now they hate me. You know, and all of that stuff is, Shika, you're welcoming people at the front door. How do we go about doing that? And are we able to be open to each person? And are they noticing where we are? All of that's in play. And so how do we come into those roles honor those roles, be those roles completely, and be authentic, and use them to see what's going on for us when we're not authentic. Because we are always in roles. You know? And the interesting thing about very consciously occupying roles in the way that we do in Zen is we start to be able to see that actually we are never not in roles. We are always, what we think we are is a role. <laughs> it's a role assigned to us by a society who's quite rigid about the roles we're allowed to occupy, but they are roles. And so how can we begin to inhabit these roles in a way where we are liberated instead of in a way we are strangled by them? And that is not easy work. But... um, But it's something that we have to do, and it really points to something we get very confused about. I think, and I don't know, I I was about to say I think Americans and students even more. I don't know if that's true or not. But we do have this individualist idea in America that is very confusing. And what what it confuses and why there's a lot of, um, there can be a lot of resistance to this way of practicing is that we mix up agency and grasping our conditioning. We confuse those two things at a deep level. So when we come in and we don't like something, we have an idea that, well, I don't want to do that, or I shouldn't, because it's not me. You know, that kind of expression of it's not me to do that. You know? And at that point, I would encourage everyone who's the me that you think that you're defending? Did you come up with the me that you're defending? Were you told to be the me that you're defending? You know, are you acting out of a whole bunch of unconscious conditioning that you think is what you are, and so you're defending that? And in that world, you know, what is agency? If we're actually just acting out of conditioning, what's agency in that situation? And I would say that until we can... Um, deeply see our conditioning, we have never had an experience of agency. Or we've had very few. And because we're just acting out of the way we've been trained to act. And this whole apparatus, this machine that we call Zen, is really one way of talking about it, exists to free us into our agency. 
exists uh, to free us into being um, human beings in the world that are aware of the way we've been conditioned. Our conditioning doesn't go away. It's already happened. You know. but, um, but we are able to see it and not act from it. We are able to care for it with both hands and set it down when we need to. Not dismiss it. Not treat it disrespectfully. But, um, but not see it as the ground from which we are born. You know, it is, um, and that is a different way of being who we are as a human being. It's just a different way of being who we are as a human being. And so, in that sense, I'm going to end with the role of a student very quickly. Danielle asked me an impossible question. She said, what are the three things that you want to, every Zen student should know? And um, I was like, I have no idea what the three things. And I've been thinking about this. It's been my koan. What are the three things? I didn't even talk about precepts. I'm skipping over the whole moral agreement we do as precepts. So that'll be another time. Um, What are the three things? And what my mind came down to was not um, three things, but one thing. And the one thing that I would say that all Zen students need to commit to is returning. If this is going to, if this is going to um, affect our lives deeply, if liberation is going to be real for us, and what liberation is is a whole conversation unto itself, but if we are going to be freed beings in the world, we have to return to meditation. We have to return to our intention. We have to return to the community of practice that supports us. We have to, we have to return to each other and to these roles and to the schedule and to all the things that um, show us who we are. And there will be so many times we don't want to return. There will be so many times when we hate this. There will be so many times when this is just annoying and aggravating or boring or not what I think I am or whatever it is. And if we do not return, we will give in to the conditioning, to the grasping of the conditioning that has run us so far. Now, it may be that our deepest intention is our deepest, um, yeah, our deepest longing is not liberation from suffering. And if it's not, then it doesn't matter. And there are other ways to go about liberation from suffering. The only thing that I can say with confidence is that this way works. Period. But it has a particular way that it functions. And we can either uh, return to that way and stay true to it and stay true to ourselves or not. And will it feel authentic at first? No. Will it feel odd? Yes. Will it feel great sometimes? Yeah, probably. 
miserable other times? Yes, probably. You know, all of those things are going to happen. But, um, but we have to stay true despite it, because of course the body is going to run from what's uncomfortable and go to what is comfortable. But the whole thing about liberation is that it is challenging our karmic conditioning, and therefore, by definition, it is uncomfortable. It is, that is just going to be an aspect of it. And really joyful. And really wonderful. And a sense, a powerful sense of community when it runs well. <laughs> and love. So I would just encourage that and remember that all of this is ultimately in service of what we call Bodhisattva vow, which is that we are doing this Our liberation is wrapped up with the liberation of all beings. We cannot, if we think about roles, no matter how liberated we are, we're occupying roles in the world. And those roles are defined by ways of thinking that our whole society takes on. And no matter how free I am within, say, the role of white male, if... um, if patriarchy still exists, if racism still exists, then I am trapped. I am trapped into a role. I am trapped into a kind of system of domination. I am trapped into all kinds of things that I don't have power over. So despite how free I am in that situation, I am in this role. So what is it to be in this role and take responsibility for this role? What is it to take responsibility? I can't be fully liberated until everybody's liberated from those ideologies. Until everybody's free. That's one example. There are many. I just use those examples because sometimes we talk about bodhisattva liberation in these very abstract ways that are quite mysterious. And I think those ways are true also. I think there's a whole aspect of liberation that is mysterious and beyond what we understand. But there are very practical societal ways of talking about liberation that, are, um, that our interconnectedness is clear and that devoting ourselves to the liberation of all beings and our relationship to that liberation, our own liberation's relationship to that liberation are so crystal clear if we pay any attention that it is impossible to sit down at a... um, uh, It's impossible to sit down and deepen all the way without carrying the whole world with us. That has to be there. That has to be our heart. So, um, with that, I would encourage you to please keep up your practice. Please come and sit. Please keep returning. And, um, and stay true to yourself. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.